Welcome, it's Brian here, one of the hosts of the End of the Myth podcast, and before we get started with this inaugural episode, I just wanted to give a special thanks to Bjorn Harlson for the music for the show, and Carl Nelson for the excellent artwork, which you can view, incidentally, by going to our show's webpage. Yes, we're going to have a webpage that is going to aggregate all of these shows as they come out as well as uh, contains some little treats and goodies for you, like being able to see Carl's artwork in full, but also uh, a suggested readings link that will take you to sources that we use in each episode, as well as links to articles and books that keep coming up, just in case you want to go that extra mile and really dive deep into how awful this country really is. All right, so make sure to check that out. Uh, is put up for us, by the way, by our good friend and Mechanical Freak host, Colin. So thank you for that. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. For over a century, the frontier served as a powerful symbol of American universalism. It not only conveyed the idea that the country was moving forward, but promised that the brutality involved in moving forward would be transformed into something noble. Frontier expansion would break every paradox, reconcile every contradiction between, say, ideals and interests, virtue and ambition. Extend the sphere, and you will ensure peace, protect individual freedom, and dilute factionalism. You will create a curious, buoyant, resourceful people enthralled to no received doctrine transcend regionalism, spread prosperity, and move beyond racism. As horizons broaden, so will your love for the world's people. As boundaries widen, so will our tolerance. The realization that humanity is our country. There was no problem caused by expansion that couldn't be solved by more expansion. War-bred trauma could be rolled over in the next war. Poverty would be alleviated by more growth. But today, the frontier is closed, the safety valve shut. Whatever metaphor one wants to use, the country has lived past the end of its myth. Where the frontier symbolized perennial rebirth, a culture in springtime, those eight prototypes in Ote Mesa loom like tombstones. After centuries of fleeing forward across the blood meridian, all the things that expansion was supposed to preserve have been destroyed, and all the things that it was meant to destroy have been preserved. Instead of peace, there was endless war. Instead of a critical, resilient, and progressive citizenry, a conspiratorial nihilism, rejecting reason and dreading change, has taken hold. Factionalism congealed and won a national election. Never before has a ruling class been as free, so completely emancipated from the people it rules as ours. For most everyone else, the area of freedom has contracted.
welcome to the inaugural episode of Ending the Myth. And what you just heard there, well, that was the thesis of historian Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Grandin is a well-known and respected historian, author of such acclaimed books as Empire's Workshop, The Empire of Necessity, and Kissinger's Shadow. See, he didn't get empire in the title of that last one. <laughs> he almost has he almost has an empire trilogy, you know? Yeah, so close. <laughs> what a shame. So we decided to discuss this book uh, because we wanted to excavate the root of American mythology around individualism and free enterprise. And into the myth, uh, it serves as a survey of American history that focuses on the particular pathologies that make America a uniquely awful place. Yeah, we are going to be discussing the book in a series of episodes that are more or less arranged in chronological order with the book. In each episode description, we will include which chapters of the book we'll be pulling from for the episode, so you can follow along. Yeah, for instance, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, pieces of chapter one and chapter seven. Yeah, we're throwing a curveball this time. Don't worry, it's not going to be like that on every single episode. <laughs> no, this is going to be like a Tarantino movie. Uh, we're going we're gonna to cut this thing up like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, uh, yeah we respect our listeners' intelligence here. Like, that, that's, that's why we're doing this. <laughs> I promise this is the first and only time that we will start in the middle and come back to the beginning. But Yeah, Brian, know, why, are, why are we doing Chapter 7? Why are we jumping to Chapter 7? We're jumping into chapter seven because we want to talk about the man who created the very myth that uh, that Greg Grandin is talking about, which is Frederick Jackson Turner, who created what's called the frontier thesis at the turn of the 20th century. And we just think, you know, as we get into this book, uh, if you're a historian, you are well aware of this, the uh, Frederick Jackson Turner and his idiot thesis. Uh, if you're an American, you are also well aware of it. You just probably don't know the name of it. Uh, but we wanted to dive into it because its origin story is uh, as weird as the people it would ultimately create. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Psycho. Yeah. And Grandin doesn't just doesn't really get to the thesis until chapter seven. So, yeah. you know. We're so, just going to cut to the chase. That's why we're here. We're, <laughs> that's our trusted we're here, guide. We're here to correct Greg Grandin. Yeah, yeah. Starting <laughs> Greg Grandin's mistakes. Who All right. edits the editor? <laughs> <laughs> but as we go through this book, we're also going to be inviting on uh, historians and journalists to help us expand on topics covered in the book itself. And, uh, you know, Munya, we just might do a uh, a little journey off the course of the book ourselves here and there quite possibly stay tuned listener find out so where exactly did the myth of american individualism and exceptionalism forged on the frontier come from well in 1893 presenting in front of a small crowd at the world's congress of historians and historical students held during the chicago world's fair uh you know where the party was at (laughs) (laughs) getting the stage lit was university of wisconsin professor frederick jackson turner that's where he laid out his frontier thesis in short it stated that quote the existence of an area of free land its continuous recession and the advance of american settlement westward explain american development 
Yeah, you might think that after Turner finished, the hall was filled with a standing ovation, morphing into chants of... If it did, no one thought to mention it. But within a decade, the Frontier Thesis would spread like wildfire, becoming the explanation for what makes America, America. There have been previous schools of thought regarding American expansion, of course. In 1750, Benjamin Franklin posited an economic theory of expansion, that it would keep wages high and land available, providing a natural safety valve not available to European states that would help the United States avoid an urban crisis. James Madison gave a political theory for expansion. Dispersing labor over large distances would make it less likely to join, quote, common interests or passion, unquote, to become, quote, united and actuated in their objectives to discover their own strengths and to act in unison with each other. Which is a really fancy old man way of saying, this will probably keep those workers in line and keep them from organizing. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> and of course, old Tommy J, Thomas Jefferson, gave a romantic vision of American expansion while writing the Declaration of Independence. He upheld the ideal of the yeoman farmer citizen, making Western expansion synonymous with the concept of freedom itself. Now, by the late 19th century, most historians were adherents to a different theory, a germ theory of social development in America. Germ theory argued that what makes America great was created in England and Germany, already just going off the rails in my well, book. Well, that's, that's why they called it germ theory, because a germ, a knee. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, wow. it's not. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you hit it here first. Yeah, we're just going to just make up facts on this podcast. <laughs> you can cut that later. <laughs> Everything from America's political institutions to its market economy to its vim and vigor was there in the blood of its colonists as they got off the boat. As historian George Bancroft would write in 1846, when the Puritans arrived, quote, their institutions were already perfected. Or as Charles McLean Andrews summarized one year before Turner produced his frontier thesis, the origins of the American frontier spirit were found to be in the forests of Germany. Greg Grandin points out, Turner, in contrast, flipped the focus. He said that what was good in America was made in America. Free land, he wrote and an abundance of natural resources open to a fit people made the democratic type of society in America. America's unique democratic individualism, Turner held, was a new product that is American. American democracy came out of the American forest and it gained strength each time it touched a new frontier. Turner's thesis arrived at an important time for the American Academy. Several revisionist and reactionary fields were being built simultaneously with Turner's frontier thesis. The Dunning School was rewriting the Civil War. <laughs> Historian William Archibald Dunning and his acolytes that studied under him at Columbia University began to rewrite the history of Reconstruction in the Antebellum South in 1897. In their retelling, Black people became a menace to people, property, virtue, and democracy itself. As historian Eric Foner notes, quote, the Dunning School functioned as the intellectual underpinning of the revanchist Jim Crow order in the South while soothing the conscience of northern liberals. 
Always love to sue the conscience of northern liberals. Nothing much has changed there. Yeah, they also love to have their conscience soothed. Yeah. So. <laughs> it quickly became the dominant school in American history with regard to the antebellum South, the Civil War, and most importantly, Reconstruction. It had a vocal adherent in the White House in Woodrow Wilson and produced two of the most famous films of the early 20th century, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. Which, uh, editorially, I just heard somebody at QFC uh, telling the checker, you've not seen Gone with the Wind? You gotta see Gone with the Wind. <laughs> I, I, I still I still think about the Trump speech where where he's just like doing this wedge issue on how like movies aren't good anymore. He's like, by the way, how bad were the Academy Awards this year? You said, you know, I'm looking for like, where, where, let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get like Gone with the Wind back, please? Sunset Boulevard. And then you have Brad Pitt. I was never a big fan of his. He got up and said, little wise guy statement. Little wise guy. He's a little wise guy. Gone with the Wind is about four and a half hours long, which <laughs> guarantees that Donald Trump is also he not seeing Gone with the Wind. absolutely didn't watch it. Like, the, man, no the man couldn't sit through all of Bloodsport. He had a special edited edition <laughs> of Bloodsport that was only the fight scenes because the rest was too much. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> boring <laughs> oh man so uh what else was going on Munya? cold spring harbor was promoting eugenics yeah in 1910 charles davenport and harry laughlin established the eugenics records office at cold spring harbor laboratory Adherents of the eugenics school created by Francis Galton in 1883, Davenport and Laughlin made measuring skull sizes and studying family trees the biggest and most prestigious field of scientific research in America. They influenced everything from school curriculums to immigration policy to forced sterilization to the Holocaust, oh. after which they quietly renamed their field genetics. Ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weird. Hmm. In this era of social reaction, Turner's thesis similarly sought to turn the world on its head. Turner changed the meaning of frontier from the traditional idea of a border to a space of, quote, civilizational struggle, the meeting point between savagery and civilization, to use one of Turner's 13 different definitions of the frontier. Wait, wait, wait. So he gave... 13 different definition of what the frontier is oh yeah <laughs> he is full of definitions what the hell man <laughs> but the thing is the imprecision of turner's thesis is exactly its power oh yeah it was neither provable nor unprovable it was everything in nothing it was everything you wanted it to be <laughs> ah well people must have hated that yeah, they hated it so much that it netted Turner a job at Harvard and a spot on the prestigious American Historical Review. <laughs> oh, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> For Turner, most of all, the frontier would come to mean a promise of limitless resources that deepened democratic values like independence, personal initiative, and above all, individualism, while tamping down on, quote, less wholesome tendencies like a desire for wealth redistribution. Oh, yeah, that little thing. <laughs> Wonder why Harvard wanted him so much. Yeah, no, it, it's a mystery. <laughs> well, I guess we'll never know. Yep. In formulating his thesis, Turner gives a new genesis for civilization. 
complex society, Turner wrote, is precipitated by the wilderness. Turner argues that individuals go into nature and apply their labor to reshape the land. Families then begin to aggregate, forming voluntary associations and commercial networks that are shaped by frontier values, including initiative, optimism, trust, cooperation, individualism, along with a refusal to tolerate despots. Only after this does the state enter the picture, ready to be infused with the very frontier values that the frontiersman has created. Okay, the only problem with Turner's thesis is that it is completely ahistorical. As Grandin notes, quote, What we think of the West since its inception has been the domain of large-scale power, of highly capitalized speculators, businesses, railroads, agriculture, and mining. In short, the state preceded the frontier. What? <laughs> what Turner is engaging in is not a historical project, but a political project. Taking the westward expansion of the United States out of the realm of history and turning it into an all-encompassing reactionary metaphor. Uh, Grandin and Into the Myth continues. Turner's sequence, nature, settlement, labor, society, security, trade, trust, more trade, which leads to more security and trust, and then the government, is important in that it crystallizes a number of uniquely American ideals about the relationship between the economy, rights, and sovereignty. Labor mixed with nature creates property. Property creates virtue. Private property-based virtue exists prior to the state. And the state's only legitimate function is to protect virtue, not create virtue. It's a sleight of hand, but it was, and remains, a powerful move. One that premises the virtue of freedom as existing independently of the state to only guarding virtue. That premise makes possible the ongoing refusal of the United States to accept the legitimacy of social or economic rights. Individual inherent rights found in nature to have, to bear, to move, to assemble, to believe, to possess, were legitimate, as was the state that protects them. Social rights, to receive health care, education, and welfare, made possible by state intervention, were perverse. So in short, what Grandin is arguing is the political project that Turner was involved in here was to look back at the history of the United States, where the state engaged in a project of massive force and expenditure to clear land to the West, to put settlers on it, to look at that project and rewrite it and say, no, that was just uh, rugged individuals going out there <laughs> and doing their thing. And uh, the state just chased after them. Yeah, the states were just like, oh, man, like those cowboys, we got to <laughs> we got to move like they're like thinking one step ahead of us. My gosh. <laughs> yeah, we almost get the idea that maybe they were just uh, innovative entrepreneurs, uh, just recreating the future for all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to see this theme really prop up again. Like this is basically the creation of the rising grind guy that we're going to be visiting throughout this whole series. <laughs> exactly. And it's going to create a lot or make room for a lot of different psychoses in America. One being hyper individualism, the idea of the, the cult of the self-made man. Uh, the other being the idea that the state is nothing but bad. And they're out to get you. 
Yep, as Ronald Reagan uh, once famously said. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The other thing is, if the conquest of the West was the product of individual gumption and moxie, well, those conquerors must have had something inherent in them, something special in them. Mm-hmm. And those conquerors are uniformly white. Yeah. So huh. funny how that happens. Weird how that works. And I'm sure that that will not create any bizarre ideas of those people's heads once they get told that they, in fact, are the heroes of their narrative. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. I can't imagine any sort of weird, awful, psychotic breakdown <laughs> or, you know break that happens with any of them it's just uh, we, we could just sweep that under the rug i don't think that yeah. that you know that might be like some like wedge thing but i don't think it would like blow up in any significant way right <laughs> yeah i'm sure that california won't become the weirdest most psychotic state <laughs> <laughs> we want to close today uh with an excerpt from historians charles and mary beard's 1944 book a basic history of the united states these historians at the turn of the 20th century were, crea- were credited with creating the progressive history field, which ran uh, exactly 90 degrees to Turner's frontier thesis and sweep, uh, you know, grand heroic sweep of American history. Charles and Mary Beard focused on things like class and economic interests huh? <laughs> uh, and came to So let's just say some very different conclusions about the sweep of American history. And in their basic history of the United States, they give this summary of Frederick Jackson Turner and his contribution to the culture. In 1893, Frederick Jackson Turner published a paper on the frontier in American history, which made individualism an interpretation of American history by ignoring the family and communities, that is, mutual aid, and tracing the secret of American uniqueness to the stoutest of all alleged individualists. The man of the frontier, as if there had been no woman or families or communities or books or schools or churches there. Just (laughs) open land. (laughs) When the 20th century opened, the doctrine of individualism had become a potent influence in American thought. Thousands of men and women who knew little or nothing of its origins, or were indifferent to its one-sided nature, had accepted it as a law in nature in private affairs and public policy. In fact, the history of the preceding 25 years, the rapid opening of the West, the swift rise of industries, and the increase of national wealth seemed to them proof that the theory was in accord with reality. To coming generations, it was transmitted by instruction in universities, colleges, and lower schools, as if it had never been analyzed or controverted by minds as able as those by which it had been formulated. So thoroughly entrenched was it in places high and low that President Hoover won rounds of popular applause when he prefixed an adjective to it and spoke of rugged individualism. Judging by the fervor of that applause, rugged individualism was a supreme characteristic of the American life, character, and purposes. Well, join us next week when we look at colonial America and talk about the country that could have been the road that was not taken. See you next week.
The money's not the deal, the cow's not the deal, it's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de Space.